the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the sixth chapter. Jesus said, But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even, even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running back, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke's Gospel, he preaches the Sermon on the Plain. And they are not identical, but they very much rhyme with each other, just as they very much don't rhyme with the ways and the wisdom of the world, and full disclosure with the ways and the wisdom of a corner or two in my heart as well. Love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Lend to those who can't pay you back, expecting nothing in return. Treat others the way you'd like them to treat you, even when that's not how they treat you. That corner in my heart protests, of course, because can't you see, Jesus, that's not how the world works. To which Jesus, I think, replies, look again, look all around, and tell me, is the way the world works actually working? Which actually takes us to our reading from the book of Genesis for today, comprising 10 verses plucked out of a 14-chapter-long story that brings the book of Genesis to a close. It's the story of Joseph. Now, as it turns out, those 10 verses from today make absolutely no sense without the rest of the story. Some of you know it. Some of you don't. Some of you kind of, but it's been a while. Who was your third grade Sunday school teacher? I'm going to tell you the kind of Cliff's Notes version of the story, and then we're going to let the story lead us to today's text. We will start with Joseph's dad, whose name was Jacob, but God gave him the nickname Israel after his brief stint as an amateur wrestler, 
And so he's the person for whom the people who would be known in Scripture as God's chosen people would be named after when they were called the children of Israel. And here's the thing. Jacob slash Israel was a piece of work who knew exactly how the world works. And with a little deceit here and a little take advantage of them when they're vulnerable there, and then a little smoke and mirrors elsewhere, he made it work for him until it didn't. And then he found himself running for his life because his brother Esau wanted to kill him, and he sure enough had probable cause, I'll tell you that. On his first night, all alone and on the run, God appeared to him in a dream and promised him not that he was about to get exactly what he deserved for what he just all the things he had done, but promised him rather that it would be through him and his descendants that God would keep the promise he made to Jacob's grandpa, Abraham. That promise being to bless him so that through him and through his descendants, God might reach with God's blessings to God's entire world. You maybe say, why in the world did God choose this man, such a blatant sinner, to be the namesake of God's people? Well, at least part of the answer, of course, is that since we're talking about the real world, it's not like God had any other options than sinners. Jacob ended up back in Grandpa Abraham's old stomping grounds where he met and fell in love with Rachel. So he made an arrangement with her dad to work for him to ha for seven years in order to have Rachel's hand in marriage. But in what might be called by some kind of a case of karma coming around to do her thing, seven years later, through some of his own deceit, Rachel's dad did a bait-and-switch kind of thing, the result being that Jacob unknowingly ended up getting married to Rachel's older sister, Leah, and not figuring it out until the next morning, by which time the marriage had already been consummated. We're told that Rachel was beautiful, and Jacob loved her, and Leah wasn't, and Jacob didn't. We're not told how Leah felt about that all. I can't even imagine. We are told that while Jacob then agreed to seven more years of work to earn the hand of the woman he did love, he did, with Leah, have children. A farm can always use more farmhands. At last, Jacob did marry Rachel, who seemingly couldn't bear children. Meanwhile, following the practices of the day, Jacob also married and had children with both Rachel and Leah's handmaids. Finally, however, and surprisingly, the only one of the four he actually did love gave him a child, and he named him Joseph who was immediately and obviously far and away the favorite of his children, for he was the child of the, only woman, of the only woman he truly loved. They all finally moved back to the home country where Esau became the one to choose something other than the way the world works by forgiving his brother, and where Rachel then gave Jacob a second son, whom they named Benjamin. But the labor was hard and Rachel died in childbirth. As Joseph grew, 
as Dad's obvious favorite. He didn't gain any fans around the dinner table. The situation which got worse when he came down to breakfast one day and told his brothers about a dream he had where all 12 of them had sheaves of grain. But then, listen to this, guys. Your sheaves of grain all bowed down to mine. And then I had another dream in which the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowed down to me. They said, what, now we're supposed to bow down to Daddy's little pet brat? With the exception of Benjamin, they all to a man hated him. Jacob, in a clueless bit of horrible parenting, then commissioned an amazing technicolor dream coat of the finest fabric and gave it to Joseph, who then either clueless himself or just by this time a complete prima donna by all the spoiling he'd been spoiled with, showed it to his brothers and said, look what dad gave me. With the exception of his little brother, Benjamin, they all to a man hated him even more. One day when the ten were at the far reaches of the family ranch, Jacob sent Joseph to see how things were going, and the brothers saw their chance, and they grabbed Joseph, stripped him of that robe, threw him down a well, and their intent was to kill him. They said and decided how. But when a, a group of slave traders then came by on their way to, to Egypt, one of the siblings convinced his others that they could, they could do better by selling Joseph to be a slave in Egypt. And so they did. And then they tore his robe and they dipped it in goat's blood and they took it home to Dad, telling him, Dad, is, is this what we think it is? The beautiful robe you gave to our little brother Joseph? Dad, we're so sorry, but it's all that's left. A wild animal must have got to him before he got to us. Jacob was inconsolable. Down in Egypt, Joseph ended up as a slave in the house of a man named Potiphar, who was most impressed by Joseph and made him his head of staff, slave-wise. As it turns out, however, Potiphar's wife was also quite impressed by the young man. But for a different reason, she tried to seduce him. He ran, but she grabbed his robe and held on to it. And so when he ran out, she held on to the robe and then yelled, Rape! Oh, and she also played the race card, telling her husband what that Hebrew, that foreigner that you brought into our house, tried to do to her. Joseph was imprisoned for a crime he did not commit. Where it turns out the chief jailer was most impressed by him and made him his head of staff prisoner-wise. The writer of the story writes that the reason people were impressed by Joseph was because the Lord was with him. And, I mean, it's, 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 like, it's like that that was visible somehow. By the way, I think I've known people like that. Quite obviously, however, because the Lord is with you doesn't mean your life won't take some mighty tough turns. But what it does mean is that in prison there was one, albeit there was only one, who didn't turn away from him, and that was God. Sometime later, two members of Pharaoh's staff were imprisoned, where they both had dreams, which they both told to Joseph, who then told them what their dreams meant, although he was clear to them that this wasn't coming from him, this was coming from God. 
And what he said specifically is that one of the people, the cupbearer, would be restored to his position in Pharaoh's court, while the other, the chief baker, would be executed by Pharaoh, hanged. And so it was. Unfortunately, when the cupbearer was returned to his position, he too forgot all about Joseph. Until Pharaoh started dreaming two recurring dreams, which troubled him greatly. And then the cupbearer did remember Joseph. And Joseph was summoned to tell Pharaoh what his dreams meant. What they meant, Joseph told Pharaoh, is that God was giving him advance notice that the current run of bumper crops would be coming to an end after seven years to be followed by seven years of terrible drought and that wisdom would advise that Pharaoh appoint someone to store up crops during the fat years so that his people could survive the lean years. Pharaoh was so impressed by Joseph and the obvious presence in him of what he called the Spirit of God that he raised Joseph up to do precisely that, making him second only to Pharaoh himself, power-wise. Back to Jacob and sons who are themselves running out of food. When they get word that food is available in Egypt, and Jacob sends his ten oldest sons to Egypt, but he doesn't send Benjamin. He'd lost the one son he loved. He wasn't going to lose the other one. The brothers were shown into the presence of Joseph, whom they did not recognize, but he recognized them, and they bowed down before him. We're not told if Joseph thought to himself, hmm, reminds me of a dream I had. Joseph quizzed them. He said that he needed more information because they were foreigners and they could be spies. He then said he was going to keep one of them in prison where he would stay until the others came back for more food and this time brought their youngest brother with him as proof that they had been telling him the truth all along. He sent th then sent them home with bags of grain, at the bottom of which he had his steward place the money they had brought to pay for it. When the brothers opened the bags back home and saw the money, they were terrified. They knew that that Egyptian would think they stole it. And the famine continued, and the food ran out again. And they had to go back to Egypt, and as they explained to their dad, Benjamin had to come along. And all went well until Joseph sent them back with food, instructing his steward in Benjamin's bag to place his own silver cup. And after they left, he sent his soldiers after them, and they found the precious goblet in Benjamin's bags, which brought them all back to Joseph, who said, The rest of you can go home to your father, but the one who stole my cup will be imprisoned here. It's how the world works. But then Judah, the second oldest of the sons, said, My Lord, please, take me instead. My father already lost his favorite son, the firstborn of the only wife he loved. If he now loses this other son whom he loves, it will kill him. Please, let the boy go back with my brothers and keep me in his place. I cannot cause my father to suffer again the way he has suffered before. 
And Joseph then stepped out of the room and it says he wept so loudly that everyone in the palace could hear it. We aren't told what the tears were for. Presumably for joy that his father was still alive. Presumably, too, with joy to see that his brothers had matured, were now willing to sacrifice for their love for their father and his remaining favorite son. Presumably, one might think, out of grief for all that he had missed in these years away from his dad. Were one to think that, however, one would be wrong. As we now see, because we have now arrived at our reading for today, where Joseph tells his brothers who he is, which of course terrifies them, for they know what they've done, and they know what he can now do to them to get even just like that, and he would have every right. That is how the world works. But Joseph rises above rights. He forgives them. There are times in the real stories of real people in this real world where the only way the story can move forward in the direction of something good, something healed, something that will work in this mis misguided world that keeps thinking it's an eye for an eye that works, is when someone is strong enough, courageous enough, wise enough to break that powerfully destructive cycle with the restorative and healing power of forgiveness. But Joseph also said something else to his brothers. And that is that what they planned and did <clears throat> for the purposes they had, had actually ended up as part of the plans and purposes God had. We need to hear that, but I think also we need to be a little careful about how deeply we dive into that. For I, I don't think that looking back, Joseph was now saying that it was somehow the will of God that Jacob had a favorite son whom he spoiled, and he had other sons that he treated like second-class citizens, or that it was the will of God that the others hated the one so much they sold him to be a slave in Egypt, or that it was the will of God that he was imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit. But here's, here's what Joseph, I think, was saying and could now see. And this is often how this works best. In hindsight, you start to see. Joseph could see how amidst the plans and purposes and even faults and sins of the real people in this real world, God was nevertheless always at work with it all and midst it all. And what God was at work for was something good. Even when sinners sometimes gave what God, sinners sometimes gave God to work with wasn't good at all. Something to bear in mind the next time you think that you being, <clears throat> well, you, aren't a good enough person to be part of God's plans. Sinners don't need to free themselves of all of their sin to be a part of grace's plan for sinners. Something to bear in mind, too, the next time what God has to work with is something not at all good in your life. Something doesn't need to be good 
for our God of love and grace to do good with it and to lead to good from it. And it's something to bear in mind again soon when we turn the page of the church's calendar to the season of Lent and its journey to that cross on that Friday, the worst day the world has ever seen. And oh my goodness gracious, the good and grace God will do with that. Amen.